0: The following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, ICC. It is good to be here with you all and to be bringing the word uh, to our church this morning. Um, as we begin this time of looking into God's word together and asking God to speak to us through his word, Um, I'll be the first to admit that actually listening and uh, paying attention to sermons while we're doing worship at home has been really, really difficult. Um, We're often sitting on our couches or at our our breakfast tables, dinner tables, and we might have toddlers and kids that are playing nearby or other children of ours that are on their own Zoom calls in other rooms or even in the same room as us. And I'm hesitant to say this because if anything, uh, on a week where I'm preaching rather than one of the other members of our pastoral staff here, um, I'd say maybe it's better for everyone to just take a break from paying too close attention uh, because, you know, if if that was just me talking here today on the pulpit, that that would be my heart. But in the faith that this is a time where God actually speaks to his people— I want to invite you all to join me as we hear what God is saying to us today. Because as we saw in the video, the topic of today's message is exactly that. Hearing or listening. Shema. Last week during our study of the covenants, Dr. Steve said that one of the questions being answered in Scripture in the study of covenants is, How can a holy God have a relationship with fallen, sinful people? And the answer provided by these covenants is, through promises of faithfulness and commitment. At the heart of these covenants is the power of God's promises to give us hope for our future, a future in relationship with God. We can think of today's study in Deuteronomy six forty nine, the beginning of the Shema, as an answer to the converse of that question. How do fallen, sinful people remain in relationship with a holy God? And of all the ways that God could have answered that question, he says... To listen. So let's read our passage together, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So, in this passage, we're commanded at the very beginning Hear, O Israel. But what is it that we're supposed to listen to? What is it that we're supposed to be hearing? And the statement that follows is it tells us that we're supposed to hear God's promise of love. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one." The text says, uh, the text on your screen, as we uh, show these slides, doesn't say, "The Lord our God, the Lord is one," but it actually says, "Yahweh, our God." Yahweh is one," right? And as we go on in our message, I'll actually be uh, using Yahweh rather than the Lord, because in our Bibles, when the text says Lord in all caps, it actually is a reference not to God as a title, like he's our Lord, he's our master, but it's actually referring to his name, the name that God gave to Moses and identified himself as to his people. And in this passage, it's so important that we recognize and we're reminded of the fact that we actually know our God by name. So Yahweh, our God, Yahweh. Is one. And in this, we can see two major points. One is that He is our God. Yahweh, our God, right? This is a a brief statement. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. But two huge, theologically important points to be made. And the first one is that Yahweh is our God. And the second one is that He is one. So what does it mean when it says Yahweh is one? Well, I think uh, at least part of it is that He's unfair unchanging he is always faithful he's not going to be different yesterday than he was today he doesn't have these divides in his character he doesn't ever go against what he what he is and who he is he's faithful and the second part that we can kind of tack along with that this idea of God is one is that he's unique he's holy because nothing else in the world is faithful or unchanging the way that he is But actually, in this verse, there's actually a lot of scholarly debate about how to translate this line, and because of this ambiguity, many English translations include in a footnote um, multiple different possible renderings, right? So the ESV uh, includes three different renderings in the footnote there. The first one is, Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. The second one would be, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And the third is, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. And I want to kind of focus on that last translation Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone, because this kind of brings in a different nuance to this statement that not only is He unique in all the world, but He is uniquely our God. It kind of combines those two ideas that He's our God and He is the only one who is our God. He is the one who has shown up and taken care of us all the time. Yahweh is the one who made promises to our forefathers and who heard us while we were slaves in Egypt and who delivered us, rescued us out of Pharaoh's hand. Yahweh alone is our God. And I think both of those readings of this text are, um, are meaningful and they were intended and that they're informative. And taken as a whole, we can conclude from this statement that God is declaring his covenant to his people. He's saying, me, Yahweh, your God, who has been faithful and will always be faithful as your God, I alone am your God. So God's command for us to hear this truth, to listen to this, um, we might ask ourselves, like, well, what, why is this so important? Why do we just need to hear this? Why would that be God's command to us? And as we saw in the video, we realized that in the Hebrew, this word shema that they use for hear, doesn't just mean hearing as in like letting the sounds, the sound waves hit your eardrums, right? It also involves understanding what is being said, what's being communicated, and then more importantly to respond appropriately to what you hear. Usually this takes the form of some sort of obedience to what you've heard. There's no separate word in the Hebrew for obeying, so when someone tells you to do something and you do it, you just say, I heard what you said. I shamad. I heard you and I acted on it. And to be honest, if we translated this word instead of here and we used the other gloss that they actually gave in the video, listen, I don't think that this is that different from the way that we would use it in, in English today. When we tell our kids to listen, we don't mean that we just want them to like hear the words that are coming out of our mouth and then they can ignore it or do whatever they want with it. We actually mean that we want you to hear the words that I'm saying and respond to it appropriately, right? And so we might ask someone who's not listening, who's not doing what we ask them, one, did you hear what I said? Did you understand? Do you understand what I'm saying to you right now? Did you listen? Are you going to listen? Are you listening now? Or why aren't you listening? Can you please listen? Right? We use this actually in our everyday language to mean actually what the Hebrew means, that we should not only hear God's word, but we need to listen to God's word. That word Shema includes both of those senses. And scripture clearly tells us that God wants us to be listeners and not just hearers. In James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. And then I've put up here three different verses from the Old Testament, from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that all basically make the same point that the rebellious people of God can hear physically, that they have ears to be able to hear the sound, but they don't actually hear in the sense of listening and responding. And I'll just read this last one for us from Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 2. He says, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, which has eyes to see but does not see, and ears to hear but does not hear, for they are a rebellious house. And like the Israelites, we actually don't listen all the time. So like, I used to go to study at a Starbucks before all this quarantine stuff, and I would be there pretty often. I got to know some of the baristas, and would have some conversations with them while they're on their breaks and things like that. And so at the end of the day, if I spent a lot of hours studying there, I might you know, say bye to them on, on my way out, and I'd say, okay, bye, guys, have a great rest of this shift. And while they're making drinks or taking care of other customers or something, they see me saying bye. And sometimes I'll get this response where they say, you too. And I'll be like, wait, I'm not on a shift right now <laughs> for me to have a great shift. So they heard the words that were coming out of my mouth, and they kind of understood, I guess, the sentiment that I was sharing, but they didn't really asp- respond quite appropriately. Another example would be like Grayson told me, told me and Connie a couple of weeks ago that um, after he came home from, from spending the day with his grandparents, and he said, you know what happened today? I told uh, Grandpa, I love you, and he said, thank you. <laughs> and so I said, you're welcome. <laughs> and we were laughing. And he's like, yeah, he's not supposed to say thank you, <laughs> right? And we've told Grayson that before. When we say I love you to you, the appropriate response is for you to respond back to us. I love you too. And we do things like this all the time where we hear something from somebody and we don't give the proper response. So if God is telling us in this passage that he is in covenant relationship with us, that he is our God, he alone is our God, he is always faithful, what is the proper response to that statement, to that truth? Well, we respond to God's faithful covenant love by loving him with all our heart, soul, and might? In verse 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And heart, soul, and might in this context don't actually represent three like, distinct areas of our lives or areas, different, different parts of our being. Okay? It, the Jewish conception of a, of a person would not have supported that sort of like, division of a person or a life. That's not what these words meant to them. They can be thought of instead as three different ways of expressing the whole self. So if you want to actually learn more about these words, actually the Bible project that we've been using for these videos has a great series on the Shema where they go and they have a separate video exploring each one of these words individually and what that would have meant to Jewish people. I'll try to give a brief synopsis today so we can uh, understand this text a little bit better. So the word heart is the Hebrew word lev or levav. And um, lev, this word for heart, it means they understood that it was like a physical source of life, just like our heart actually is, right? But they also believe that you don't only feel with your heart, like we would normally understand a heart to be like the source of our emotions, right, or our feelings. But they also believe that you thought with your heart, right? So the heart is used uh, to think to feel and to make decisions, to decide what you're going to do in this world, to make sense of the world, decide between what's right and wrong, good and bad. So in in a way, we could say that the heart was like your decision-making factories. You know, in the um, Myers-Briggs, we might separate between thinkers and feelers, but for the Jewish people, that's all coming from your heart. Whether you're a thinker or a feeler, it's just your heart operating And so in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Right? It's the source of all life. It's your whole self. The second word that they use here is soul. And the Hebrew word is nefesh. And nefesh can refer physically to your throat or to your breath. So now we can see a little bit of how it's related to our life because you breathe for life, Right? But it's often uh, glossed or translated as soul. But today, in English, we might think of a soul as like a non-physical entity, right? It's like separate. Our body and soul are separate things. But for the Jewish people, that wasn't the case. That the nefesh really meant your entire being, including your body, the whole person or the whole life, the whole self. In Psalm chapter 42, verses 1 to 2, it says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. What shall I come? When shall I come and appear before God? It's the entire person that is longing for God that is being expressed in this. And the third word is maod. That's the word that is used for might, right? Maod. It's a kind of funny-sounding word, and it's usually not actually a noun. It's not a word that is translated anywhere else, as far as I know, in the in the Old Testament as might or strength or a noun like that, right? It's actually an adverb meaning like very or really or like a lot, much, right? So it emphasizes. It's a word that you use to emphasize another word. And so a helpful way, this is the nerd math tutor in me saying this, but a helpful way to maybe remember mode is to think of like mean, median and mode, right? What is the mode? It's the thing that occurs the most, the thing that you have the most of, right? Mode means the stuff that you have a lot of. And here we can think of it as muchness, okay, which doesn't really make that much sense in English, but, but you kind of get what I'm saying. And it's not even specifically tied to a particular thing that you have a lot of, but it's just saying all the things that you have at your disposal, whether it's your wealth or your power or your influences, relationships, talents, all of this stuff. That that is what you're using to worship God. So again, we can see that this is really referring to the whole life, the whole self. All of these words are referring to the whole person. And so the emphasis here is that we love God with all of us, with everything that we have. And this whole life, whole person love for God has at least two major implications. And the first one is exclusivity, meaning that we're to be devoted to God and not chase after all these other gods or idols, because God is our God, and so we need to be his people. It reminds me of the two lovers that are written about in the Song of Solomon. And in chapter 2, verse 16, it says, My beloved is mine, and I am his, that there is an exclusive relationship here, that God has uh, promised to be with his people, and he's given of himself to us. And so we ought to do the same. And in verses 10 to 15 of Deuteronomy 6, the chapter that we're looking at today, God says that when he brings them into the land that he promised their fathers and he fulfills all these promises, there's a huge emphasis on he's the one that's going to do that, that they should remain faithful to him and not chase after these other gods. In verse 15 it says, because Yahweh your God in your midst is a jealous God. And the second major implication of this whole life, whole self-love for God is unity or integrity, and I couldn't think honestly of a, of a good word or good way, perfect way to express this, but what I mean is that our thoughts and feelings and desires and our actions, our influences, our abilities, all of it together needs to align to fully love God. We can't just believe but not act. We can't just do the right things but not actually love God with our hearts and emotions, that we need to use all of our faculties and resources in loving him. God is one, and in the same way, he's asking us to be one in our love for him. So we see that our whole life love for God is firmly rooted in and is a response to God's amazing covenant love for us. He is devoted to us. He's set us apart, and so we ought to be set apart for him. He has unity, Consistency, faithfulness in his love for us, and we ought to have the same for him. And to this point in my sermon today, my guess is that most, if not all of us, have heard all of this before. That we know and we understand that these things are true. We know what's expected of us even. But are we really listening? Are we living in light of this truth? There is a real call in this text to real action in our real lives that cannot be dodged. The expected response to God's past faithfulness and his future for, for, for faithfulness as we continue to live for his uh, whole person love for us is a love that is not just internal, it's not just feelings, or it's not just believing certain things about him, but it's expressed with our whole lives. So we're expected to have this utter devotion to him. But the problem is that more often than not, the issue boils down to not just what we want to do or what we know or think that we should do, but whether or not we can actually do it. Are we listening? Are we responding to this truth? And we may fully intend to listen and to love God and to be faithful to him, but we fail anyway. It's like when I tell Grayson, my son, uh, to stop picking at his lips. His lips have been getting dry because of the cold in the winters. And it bleeds sometimes. And so I'm like, Grayson, you need to stop picking your lips because it's going to bleed. And like, you need to stop doing that, right? And so every time I see him picking, he's like, Grayson, stop picking your lips. And he's like, oh, OK, OK, OK. He'll stop for a minute. And then, and then he'll do it again. Grayson, stop picking your lips. Oh, sorry, I forgot. And then over and over and over again, right? Until his lips are bleeding and he's like, oh, it hurts. Or there's nothing left to pick on his lips. Or both, right? But it's not just Grayson, because I do the same thing. In the winters, my skin gets really, really dry. And sometimes it gets itchy. And when it itches, I scratch. And when Connie sees me scratching, she'll say, Chris, stop scratching. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And a little bit later, I'm scratching again. And she's like, Chris, stop scratching. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I catch myself scratching all the time, even though I know that I shouldn't and that I don't actually want to. I want to stop. But it's hard to. It just doesn't happen. And interestingly, in this passage, in Deuteronomy 6 Right? We've only gone through verses 4 and 5. He's given us his command, told us what the response is. But the rest of the passage in the next four verses, in verses 6 to 9, he tells us how we can be better at responding well to his covenant. He tells us that we will listen better when we keep on hearing. He says that the way that we can love him wholeheartedly is to let the words of these commands be written on our hearts. Let's read this together. It says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And the message here is that you need to keep on hearing this word over and over and over and over again. Let it hit you in the face multiple times a day. Even as he commands the people to hear the truth, of his covenant relationship with us and to respond by loving him. He knows, Yahweh knows how easy it is for us to go astray. And so he's telling us to live in a way that will set up constant reminders for ourselves to let that truth of his love for us and the expected response of our love for him to be on our heart. And remember that word heart is the same word lev that means that it's our whole self. Let it be on our whole being. Let it engulf your whole person. And all the verbs from verses 7 through 9 are ways for us to keep on hearing them over and over. Teach them to your children. Talk about them anytime, anywhere. Bind them on your hand and on your forehead to remind yourself and others around you. Write them on your doorposts and on your gates. So every time you go in and out, you're reminded. In other words, keep on hearing so that you can keep on listening. Well, how's this going to help? Does just hearing the truth of God's love over and over automatically create a response in us where we're going to be faithful all of a sudden? Of course, we all know that that's not the case. But by hearing this word over and over again, it's a way for us to put ourselves in a posture so that the Holy Spirit can work in us. It's a similar principle to, like, keeping, like, a gratitude journal or a prayer journal or even, like, telling your husband or your wife or your kids that you love them as you send them off to work every morning, right? It's like you told them yesterday. They know, but why do we do these things over and over and over again? Because lots of times those words may have no effect whatsoever. It may just be another part of the routine, but every once in a while, that everyday gesture will take on significant meaning. It may be exactly the reminder that your child needs on a particular, particularly difficult day when they've been having a hard time at school and have been doubting their worth. Or after a bad fight between a husband and a wife, that everyday practice of saying I love you right before you go to bed. It may be what makes it easier to be able to at least get those words out even though it's hard to say or you may not fully mean it the way that you have in the past. And your spouse may know that it was hard for you to say and that in that moment you may not have the, the loving emotions or the feelings of love, but it serves as a reminder that even in those kinds of hard times that they'll still be there. And maybe on a particularly good day, you realize that you've heard your parents say, I love you a thousand times. And you never really thought twice about it, but now you're looking back and you're reminded, oh my goodness, Like my parents really have been faithful, and loving to me. And you're moved to remind them, hint, hint, in word and deed, not just thinking about it in your head, but living this out, reminding them that you really love them too. Are we hearing the truths of God's covenant with us regularly? In his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, Dallas Willard writes, the disciplines promised to give our lives a form that would serve as a receptacle for the substance of the, Christ-like, or of the Christ life in God's present kingdom. To undertake the disciplines was to take our activities, our lives, seriously and to suppose that the following of Christ was at least as big a challenge as playing the violin or jogging. A discipline for the spiritual life is when the dust of history is blown away, nothing but an activity undertaken t- to bring us more into more co- effective cooperation with Christ and his kingdom. When we understand that grace, charis, is gift, charisma, we then see that to grow in grace is to grow in what is given to us of God and by God. The disciplines are then, in the clearest sense, a means to that grace and also to the gifts. Spiritual disciplines, exercises of godliness, unto godliness, are only activities undertaken to make us capable of receiving more of his life and power without harm to ourselves or to others. You see, the spiritual disciplines are actions that we can take, like real things that we actually do, not just things that we believe or that we think or that we feel, but things that we do to empty ourselves so that we have room to receive more of God or to actually fill ourselves and to receive more of the graces of his life and power. These disciplines can include things like practicing solitude or silence or fasting or studying scripture or worshiping or praying or serving others. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God is prescribing these practices to us and these disciplines of keeping God's covenant in our ears and in our sights, in our eyes, because hearing opens us up to the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit's work to apply the truth of God's word and his love to us and to write his commands on his heart but our actions of of, uh, constantly hearing his word makes it so that the spirit is able to do that in us in John chapter 14 verses 15 to 16 and then 23 to 26 it says if you love me you will keep my commands and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him For he dwells with you and will be in you. Continuing on in verse 23, it says, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And many of us know that the Holy Spirit uses all sorts of things to speak to us. It might be a random song on a radio, or a view of a sunset, or a text message for a friend, or this week Connie has been sharing with me that she's been blessed through these social media posts from none other than Justin Bieber. All of these things can speak to us, that the Holy Spirit can use them to convict our hearts and to speak truth to us, but while he can use those random things we can also make those moments of hearing God's reminders of his love much more regular. To build in rhythms in our life to allow that to happen more more regularly. It's like keeping a photo of your family in your wallet or having a standing date night with your spouse or guarding your dinner time as family time. Why do we do those things? It's not because those things in themselves are necessarily the most important, but that they create space for the the relationships that we care about to grow. But we often respond like Naaman did when we think, man, there's no way that this can be it. There's no way that like writing these verses on my wall or having these sticky notes with, with biblical truths on them or listening to Christian songs can really make that much of a difference, right? It's too easy. It's not spiritual enough, But remember that God is calling us to love him with our whole beings, not just a spiritual part as if that's separate from our physical part. You can't distinguish or separate the two. You are your heart and your soul and your strength. Your physical actions have real spiritual ramifications. And so we need to hear God speaking truth to us regularly. We need to talk about god regularly we need to be reminded of these truths regularly so are you listening will you listen maybe for some of us we're being invited to follow the prescriptions of verses eight and nine to actually have these physical reminders in place where we set alarms on our phone to remind us to pray we write down verses and actually put them on sticky notes and put them around our house or put them in our office or in our workspace at home or in our car or on our computer. Maybe we set the radio in our cars to Christian stations or make a mantra wall somewhere at home with truths from Scripture. Listening to this word in Deuteronomy 6 means responding, responding in our actual physical lives with real action. The rest of the time this morning, I do want to spend a little bit uh, focusing on just the commands in, in verse seven. In uh, for the Jewish people, for thousands of years, they've been reciting what they call the Shema. It comes from this passage, right? They've been reciting the Shema every morning and every evening in accordance with the commands in verse seven. And um, so, Daniel Block. Professor Emeritus from, from Wheaton says, Orthodox Jews recite the Shema twice daily as part of their prayers in the morning when they wake up and at night before they sleep. In so doing, they take the yoke of the kingdom, which is to say that they place themselves under the sovereignty and kingship of Yahweh. The Shema is as close as early Judaism came to the formulation of a creed. And why do we need creeds? Because we need to remind ourselves, retell ourselves these truths that we so easily forget. They're a way of Recentering, reorienting, refocusing. There are these micro-corrections every day so that we don't, even if our hearts are prone to wander, that we don't give them enough time to wander too far. In a, in a sermon on the Shema given for his congregation, Rabbi Aaron Raskin, the dean of Brooklyn Heights Jewish Academy, he talks about how the reason why they recite the Shema every morning and every night is because the morning represents the good times in life and the night represents some sort of the hard times. And he's saying, no matter what, Whatever the circumstance in your life and the good times that we need to be reminded that it is because of God's faithfulness. And the hard times we need to be reminded that God will still be there with us and that he promises us continued faithfulness. So what are the practices that, like the Jews who recite the Shema every day, morning and night, that we will engage in to be reminded of God's love for us? One thing that I've found that really helped me is um, this new journaling thing that I started this year in 2021 I'm terrible at journaling but I bought this new journal called the one line a day journal and it takes the pressure off so I don't have to try to come up with anything like amazing and really deep and I just write one thing at the end of the day and the profound impact that it's had on me is that it reminds me every day to um, just think about like where was God today in my in my life what was he doing what was he up to where did I miss him What were some of the good blessings of today? What were some of the struggles? So, I would challenge you all to try to take up some sort of a daily practice to hear God's promises regularly. The second way that this, uh, the second thing that verse 7 says to us is it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children, right? That it tells us that we need to um, give these commands to our children. And, And so, in Jewish culture, not only is the Shema recited morning and evening, but it's also the first of the commandments that parents teach to their children. And in verse 7, God tells his people to diligently teach this to your children, right? So parents, did you know that you are the greatest spiritual influence on your kids? In a book put out by Fuller Youth Institute called Sticky Faith, sociologist, it, it says this, Sociologist Dr. Christian Smith from the University of Notre Dame concluded, most teenagers and their parents may not realize it but a lot of research in sociology of religion suggests that the most important social influence in shaping young people's religious lives is a religious life modeled and taught to them by their parents. Christian Smith put it even more simply and succinctly while speaking as part of a panel with Chap Clark and me. When it comes to kids faith or when it comes to kids faith, parents get what they are. But unfortunately, the statistics show that the vast majority of parents are not actually engaging with their kids in conversations about faith. They write, according to the Search Institute's nationwide study of 11,000 teenagers from 561 congregations across six denominations, 12% of youth have a regular dialogue with their mom on faith and life issues. In other words, one out of eight kids talks with mom about faith. But it's far lower for dads. One out of 20 or just 5% of kids have regular faith life conversations with dad. One additional interesting statistic is approximately 9% of teenagers engage in regular reading of the Bible and devotions with their families. So not even one out of 10 teenagers looks at scripture with their parents. When it comes to matters of faith, mom's usually the word at home. And if we're really honest, most of the time those faith conversations, the few faith conversations that we're having at home, really amount to us asking kids like, How was church? or how was youth group, or what did you think of the sermon, what did you learn today? And we know how those conversations go, right? That we're going to get a lot of, like, fine, good, okay, just the usual, or if they're having a bad day, just, like, grunts and looks of disgust, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with asking these questions, and I want to encourage you parents who are asking those questions and commend you for asking because that still puts you in the top 12% for moms and top 5% for dads, right? But in their research at Fuller, they found that the best discussions about faith happen when parents don't just ask questions, but also share their own experiences. They write, our research shows that asking these questions can pay off, referring to those normal questions we always ask. But what is vital to sticky faith is that parents also share about their own faith. In other words, parents shouldn't merely interview their kids. They need to discuss their own faith journeys, including both ups and downs. And this is exactly what Deuteronomy 6 is commending to us. At the, towards the end of this chapter, in verses 20 to 25, he says, uh, when your son's a son asked you, in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, "We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household, before our eyes. And He brought us out from there, and He might bring us in that, that He might bring us in and give us the land that He swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that He might preserve us as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. What's happening here? The kids are asking their parents, like, why do we do these things? Why do we live this way? Why do you love God the way that you do? And the parents are testifying to them about the way that God has been faithful and the promise that he's given to continue to be faithful. They are teaching their children the Shema about God's covenant with us. That we need to tell our kids the stories of why we do the things that we do. And so parents, do your kids know why you love God? Do your kids know how God took a hold of your life? Have you told them the stories of the ways that God has moved in your life? Do they know what your faith means to you and why they should care about their own faith? We need to talk to our children about our faith and teach them diligently. And some people will say that you don't really have to talk about it that much because you'd rather just model it for them instead, but I'm telling you right now that you don't have to choose between the two. They are not mutually exclusive. You can talk about it and model it. You ought to do both. That's exactly what Deuteronomy 6 tells us that we need to live a wholehearted, whole person, whole life, covenantal, loving relationship with God. Not just talk, not just actions, but everything. So Kara Powell, the, the author, one of the authors of that book, shares that her family has started this tradition that when they have dinner, instead of asking, a, uh, a, they, they, they intentionally ask about the highs and lows of each day. Then they eventually added a third question, and they ask one another, how did you see God at work today? Then she goes on to say that sometimes her kids don't answer the question, don't know how to answer the question, and they are reluctant to answer the question, but that's okay. They say, like, yeah, if you want to pass, that's fine. But she says that it's actually more important that they hear what she and her husband Dave respond to that question every day. She writes, in fact, as important as the kids answering that question is, that they hear Dave and me answer that question every day. Teach your faith to your kids. It cannot be a faith that remains only internal. It cannot be something that's just believed. It needs to be something that's lived and embodied. And we need to go out of our way to show our kids what a whole life love for God looks like. Starting a new culture in your family and having Having these conversations is going to be difficult and uncomfortable. But a starting point might just be to ask your kids how you can pray for them. And then not to just walk away and be like, okay, I'll pray for you later, but to model it for them, pray for them there on the spot. Or ask them to pray for you, right? Again, it's not about just interviewing and grilling them and saying like, okay, I need to fill all your needs and you tell me what, I, what you want from me, but to do it for them, model it for them. So church, as we wrap up this message this morning, I really, really, truly believe that when we take to heart the words that God has spoken to us, when we actually live out in response to these commands and in response to the promises that he gives, that there will be radical transformations in our lives and in our families and in our church. So God is calling each of us today to listen, to hear, to respond. So will you respond to him today? Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you so much for this word for Deuteronomy 6. And Lord, we thank you for being a God who does make these promises and give us your covenant. We thank you that you're a God who is patient with us, that even when we fail, that you don't just do away, but Lord God, that you... um, You show us grace. You're always faithful, even when we're not. And Lord, I pray that um, all of those who are hearing this word today, that we would be challenged not just to be hearers, but be doers of your word. That we would listen. We would respond appropriately. We would give you our allegiance, and that we would... uh, love you with a whole heart, a whole life love. Help us to um, just open ourselves up to what the Spirit is able to do in us. And we ask for you to be giving us more of your grace and your strength each and every moment. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.